So, for the last two weeks, we have uh, uh, sort of done an introduction. And I told you that I grew up in the 70s, and um, I was a bus kid at a church in Richardson, Texas. And, uh, wow, all right. <laughs> and and I remember early youth group days, a whole lot of discussion about end times and the rapture and how it was going to happen. And then there were a bunch of uh, books and movies that were made about uh, people driving cars that were suddenly empty or driverless and they were crashing and your wife is cooking dinner and she disappears and you've been left behind. And um, then there was another wave of it in the 90s with uh, the Left Behind series. If you're as old as I am, you may remember the, the books that were the late great planet Earth and Salem Kerban's uh, 666. And all of these had the same theme. The, the rapture happens and the tribulation starts and uh, people realize what's happening and then they line up to get the mark of the beast and it um, I I ended up being a rapture skeptic I ended up going God it cannot be that cheesy it, it cannot possibly be that um, dramatic and uh, sure enough as I've read Revelation I, I've, I've come to a a high respect that there that the the revelation is an account of how the world will end. It is most definitely the the bulk of the the, the book chapter, um, really chapter three through chapter nineteen. Uh, it talks about in rich symbolism how the world will end, how how God will execute His judgment on planet Earth. But we miss the real richness of Revelation if we let that be all there is to it. If we let the, the beasts and the dragons and the bulls and the trumpets, if, if we let all of that uh, occupy our time. And one writer, he said, people either spend no time in Revelation or they spend all their time in Revelation. <laughs> that, that, that people will avoid it like the plague. And other people will read nothing else, trying to, to soak up another uh, timeline, another scheme, another uh, way to decipher the, the code of Revelation so they can identify whatever world leader is the Antichrist. And we miss the richness if we settle for that. Now, some of you have been studying a lot longer than I have, but... It seems like we need to introduce almost every study with the reminder that there are two elephants in the room when we study Revelation. One is the way people view the end times with regard to the word millennium, the, the, with regard to uh, when will the millennial reign take place. Uh, for you who are online, Gary has attached a PowerPoint show um, in the notes. And for you who are in the room, I'm glad to give it to you. 
there's a, a chart that I found called the end of the world as we know it. And um, it's the, the best I've seen. And uh, it has a description of each of the three major viewpoints as to when the millennial reign will take place. Now, the millennial reign is a description of the time between the rapture and the return of Christ. Now, there are some that think the millennial reign is only seven years. And there are some that think it's a thousand years and some that, that don't think it's coming at all. And so you can kind of organize that thinking into premillennialism, the idea that the rapture occurs, the rapture and the second coming occur before the thousand year reign where there is a constant battle between Satan and his forces and Jesus and his forces. So the in, in that framework, the time is usually laid out that the rapture happens, the church or, or, or followers of Christ are caught up to meet him in the clouds. They become part of the heavenly army. Uh, a seven-year tribulation that is awful. And then the return of Christ with his forces to begin the thousand-year uh, battle. At the conclusion of that battle, Satan is banished once and for all, and the world has come to an end. Post-millennialists believe that the second coming will come after the millennium, that all of that battle raging, that, that when Jesus comes back in his glory, it will mark the end of the millennial reign, and then it will precipitate the events that call for the world's conclusion. Amillennialism, so pre, post, and ah, and ah, of course, means not. So an, an atheist, an atheist is somebody who is uh, not a believer of God. So an amoral person is, is not immoral. They simply have no morals. They are not moral. So an amillennialist would believe that there is no literal thousand-year reign, that the uh, second coming occurs at the end of history and that the second coming will mark the end of the church age, which is what we're in now. So that's one uh, vocabulary set that uh, probably we need to have in our head. Although this is bonus for Wednesday night because on Sunday morning, you'll never hear me use those phrases. Uh, I, I I don't think that the construction of a timeline is helpful and really not really very relevant. Uh, like I told you, I'm an Acts one sevenist. It's not listed on the chart, but Acts one seven, the disciples said, "When are you coming back?" And Jesus said, "It's none of your business." <laughs> so if you ask me, am I pre, post, or awe? I am Acts one seven. I don't want to dismiss the warnings of Revelation. They are uh, they are serious because they reflect how God will judge sin 
as he brings the world to a close. So the other set of vocabulary words that we probably need to have, you may remember we talked about the four ways that people interpret Revelation. The preterist, the historicist, the futurist, and the idealist. You remember that at all? The preterist believes that all of the events of Revelation took place in the first century. That they they describe Rome as Babylon, Domitian as the great Satan. So the 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 events happened in the first century. The historicists believe that Revelation is a little bit of an allegory or a metaphor of the entire history of the church, from the beginning of the New Testament church in Acts 2 all the way till the end of time, that the events that take place are um, uh, are, are a mixture of history and allegory, that some of the events uh, did take place, will take place, but they describe the, the, the lifespan of the New Testament church. The uh, futurist believes that most or all is in the future, at least in the future of the writer of Revelation. So he would believe that all of the events in Revelation take place beginning in Patmos, where John was writing, all the way until the end of time. And then the idealist is the one who believes that there is a lens uh, through which we should see Revelation that is not locked into any of these, but is a, is a way that God wants us to see as a church and as people of God how God is continuing to act as he extends the gospel into the future and to the end of time. And the idealist does not dismiss the, the tribulation, does not dismiss the, the, the battle between supernatural evil and supernatural good, but the idealist does not try to uh, buy wholeheartedly into the other three but the idealists will say, as, as all of them will say, there is merit to all of them. That there is something we can learn from all of the interpretations of Revelation. And it's not really helpful to solely look at Revelation through our own lens. We call that confirmation bias. So as if you have a an opportunity to look at some uh, commentaries or other articles about Revelation, that's uh, that's kind of the overview. You, you need to have in your mind a handle of pre, post, and amillennialism, and you need to have in your mind uh, a handle on, on how people view all in the past, all in the future, uh, metaphorical, or a combination of all of the above, which I would call the idealist. The speculators, the ones who do the charts and graphs, those are usually futurists. <laughs> those are usually the ones that that want to uh, unpack how it's going to unfold. And there are some very, very reputable scholars who fall in that camp. I, I could name some preachers 
that some of you listen to every day and and they would fall into that i'm not saying they're oh i don't know all i know is that i'm supposed to study the scripture to see what god has for me in the text and then let the interpretation fall uh, as we can uh, track it all right so we talked about some big picture themes of revelation that uh if we don't see the gospel in Revelation, we don't understand it at all. That that is it is a that the, the first line in Revelation tells us that it is the revelation not of John, not of the church, not of the futurist, the preterist, the historicist, or the idealist. It is a vision. It is the revelation. And by the way, the word revelation and the word apocalypse are the same. They, they mean the coming or the uh, the revealing. So when we describe the revelation as apocalyptic literature, it's it's to say that it is a, a revealing of God's plan, past, present, and future for the church and for those who follow Christ and for those who don't. The, the warnings of the end times uh, and and you know that's the fodder of the 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 mark of the beasts and the the plays that maybe you saw when you were a teenager about car wrecks and some of them go to heaven and some of them go to hell. Uh, that that's the imagery of Revelation is very clear that there is a consequence for not embracing the Lamb for not having a name in the Lamb's Book of Life, and so there is a a uh, uh, it is overall a message of hope uh, because it gives us the sense that we are given a glimpse of these things with the thought that perhaps we will repent and understand that we uh, we desire to be followers of Jesus so that the positive side of revelation is our destiny and not the other side. Okay, with that, I'm going to dive into the text itself. Many of you have been patient for two weeks as I have uh, talked all around Revelation without ever doing any verses. And so tonight we're going to start in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, a few reminders. Uh, we don't know for sure who the author is. Most of us believe that it's the Apostle John. Um, the people who would say that that is in question mainly um, relate to the very dramatic difference in style in the Greek between the Gospel of John and the Revelation. That it, it's if uh, a different writer did this. Um, two things come to my mind. One, I wonder if John had a scribe to write the gospel. We know that Luke uh, had a, a scribe and that, uh, that, that Paul had a scribe. And we know that that, that was a common practice. And uh, if you'll remember, John, when he was called to follow Jesus, was a, a pretty rough Palestinian fisherman. And there's not much optimism in my mind that he knew classical Greek very well uh, I think he was 20 years old and uh, and so 
it's quite possible that in the say the 50s when the gospel of john was written that he was still gleaning uh the language and perhaps he had some help writing it but certainly by the 90s when he was uh, a very old man uh he would have had um much training in classical greek um so that that's just my opinion. I I don't have a reason to believe that it was somebody besides the apostle. Um, so again, the date probably around ninety five A.D. Um, so if John was in his twenties when Jesus was crucified in uh, thirty three A.D., that's sixty two years later. He would have been old, um, but not um, unreasonably so. The scripture will tell us in chapter 1 that it was written on the Isle of Patmos. Patmos is a small island in the Aegean Sea. It uh, was a prison colony. It's kind of an Alcatraz of Greece. Um, it was used quite often by the Roman emperors to banish family members or political enemies or anybody they just wanted off the radar. And so uh, it's quite possible. Um, now, this is speculation. It's quite possible that John was in Ephesus already. Um, we all, all of the church historians believe that he spent his later years there. And it's quite possible that he was there already and that uh, some of the things that he uh, was saying or preaching, especially if you read 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the letters, it's quite possible that he agitated the Romans and they said, that's enough of that. And, and they sent him away. Most scholars believe that he was in Patmos for a season and that at the end of his life, he returned to Ephesus, where he probably died. They also believe that um, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was in Ephesus, because at the cross, Jesus said to John, take care of her, and to her, take care of him. And uh, it, it was it is believed, and, and this is an early, early belief. This is not something that just ginned up in the later centuries. This was something that I... Uh, a, a group called the Council of Ephesus in about 415 AD, they got together and and decided that the eyewitness accounts were true and that John and Mary spent their last days in Ephesus. So it's not just one of those ideas that somebody threw out there. Why does that matter? Well, if you look at Ephesus itself, it was an incredibly important place. Ephesus is about 50 miles from Patmos. So it wouldn't have been out of the, the realm of possibility that he was in Ephesus. They said, what are we going to do with him? Don't bring him back to Rome. Send him over there to Patmos. And uh, the likely he had a, a bit of freedom. The, the scripture says that he, he lived in a cave, but there's nothing that that would suggest that he was a prisoner in the cave. It, it's a little bit like 
Paul's in early imprisonments that that he had a, a degree of freedom, more of a, a, a house arrest. I mean, he's on an island. Where is he going to go? So um, the thought is that he wrote at least the, the bulk of Revelation on the island of Patmos. Perhaps he finished it at Ephesus. We don't know. We know that uh, there's not a lot in Revelation other than the letter to the church at Ephesus that would suggest that he was living among the cultic practices. And uh, you need to get the recording from Jennifer as to the, the Bible study we did this morning in the community Bible study on the background of Ephesus. But it was it was quite the. Uh, the the pagan playground so not a lot in revelation reflects that other than the letter to the church that is obviously a future letter because at the time john wrote uh revelation the church at ephesus was blowing and going uh as were the other seven the other six that are mentioned all right so that's kind of the setting let's dive in Revelation 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We call the first three verses the prologue. Um, and, and this is interesting to me because in the Gospel of John, we call the first eight verses the prologue. So you remember the, the way that the Gospel of John starts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, and the first eight verses are, are sort of a prologue, an introduction, a teaser. So, again, maybe a, a signal that points to the gospel writer as the revelation writer in that he organized revelation with a prologue. Now, again, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. So God gave to Jesus to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all he saw. But those first two verses remind us that as we interpret Revelation, we've got to remember that we can say all we want about John's style. But this is a vision of Jesus, a revelation of Jesus, that was given to John in a vision. So he is communicating what he hears Jesus saying. And I don't have any reason to believe that Jesus didn't speak whatever kind of Greek he wanted to speak. Um, he is communicating what Jesus said to him and what Jesus showed him. Why does it say an angel then if you're telling me it's Jesus? Well, that's the... That's Communicated the, by an angel. Is that the word for Jesus? Could have been Gabriel, could have been Michael, could have been Jesus himself. Okay. Um. But then when we get into the rest of the book, chapter 3 through 19, and we we start maybe having a little bit of uh, skepticism because it's so fantastic to read, it's a dream. 
some of your dreams have been kind of crazy. And, and so John is communicating what the angel or Jesus is communicating to him. That is the revelation of things that have been, that are, that will be. And so it's no wonder there's, there's some wild kind of uh, allegories and, and, and uh, metaphors that are used throughout. We, we, Easy, Alan. <laughs> there is a, a group of people who would interpret Revelation who insist on literal uh, meaning. They insist that every number is literal. I, I have struggles with that because the number seven is used so often. And, and even here in this opening salvo, the number seven indicates completeness, which it always does. In, uh, in in biblical uh, numerology. And so a thousand year reign, it may be a thousand literally, or it may not be. It may be a seven year tribulation, or it, it may be a tribulation of the absolute right wing, which would be indicated by the number seven. Uh, the Greeks were odd. Um, I guess we have time for me to tell a, a sidebar. They didn't have a way to express their numbers. The Roman numeral system was a little later, so they would use fingers and toes, and if they need multiples, they point at an organ. The heart was worth so much, the stomach was worth so much, and, and so they would, uh, how much does it cost? They, they didn't really have a way to express that. They, they pointed at an organ, they'd hold up digits, and and they would communicate that way. So yeah. so the, the the numbers are not going to be. Uh, I wouldn't expect them to be precise. Is that where it cost an arm and a leg? <laughs> there you go. Right, Bill. Nice. That's a nice one. You didn't hear that online. Bill asked. If that's where it cost an arm and a leg came from. <laughs> so he starts off by saying. He wanted to show his servants. So all who would be followers of Christ, all whoever had been, all whoever will be, all whoever were. Um, Leon Morris wrote the Tyndall New Testament commentaries, and he's, he's one of my favorite writers. He's an older, uh, very respected uh, scholar. And one of his takes on the revelation was that if it was written in 90-something, then the church had been expecting the return of Christ for 60 years. Mm. And they were beginning to wonder, is this whole thing just, you know, they, they had set themselves up like we had talked about some of the ones in... Uh, uh, who 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 love to speculate that if their prediction comes and goes, are they disappointed or did they just set a new date? Well, Morris uh, proposed that maybe one of the reasons that the revelation was written was to encourage all those people who had the same season of doubt that everybody in this room and everybody online has had 
I wonder if this is all true. I wonder if if this is uh, just a, a construction that we have somehow put together. And in the first century, they were going, he said he was coming back. And and they they didn't know or or of course they didn't have two thousand years between those promises and and they they didn't have the time that we've had to to sort of uh, recalibrate our expectations. And Morris says maybe they needed to hear encouragement. Maybe they needed to hear that God was paying attention to Babylon. Rome, that God was offended by the human sacrifice of, of Christians that Domitian was so uh, fond of. Maybe, maybe they needed to hear that God was offended by the temples of Ephesus or the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Certainly by 95 AD, the temple was destroyed in 70. They, they, they were expecting that the temple would be rebuilt. And, and, and of course, you know that we've said it in here a thousand times that one of the themes of the whole Bible is that people thought that the uh, purpose of the coming of the Messiah was to kick out the Romans, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, restore the promised land to a land of promise in which the Jews had prominence military might, economic uh, might, that they lived in peace. Matter of fact, our our guide in Israel, when we asked her about her, uh, her uh, Christianity, she does not claim to be a Christian. And she believes that Jesus was a good man, that he was a great teacher. And then she said, but the Messiah will bring peace. And in Israel, we have known no peace. So if Jesus was the Messiah, where is the peace that he claimed to bring? And that, that would have been many of the writers, many of the, 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 the church people in the first century. Where is Where are all these promises? I get it, uh, but the imagery of the revelation is so strong, it's almost like your daddy's saying to you, be careful what you wish for. I'll encourage you, but I'm going to encourage you with a velvet-covered brick. <laughs> it'll be soft when it hits you, but it'll still hurt. And And so the... The revelation is a is a tremendously encouraging word. Um, I actually uh, wrote down part of what um, Morris said. He said, had they been mistaken in coming to Christ in the first place? Was it all a delusion? Was Christianity a, a fine religion for the sanctuary, but totally unable to cope with the demands of the forum and the capital? Must they conclude that it was a pretty delusion which must inevitably be shattered on the hard rocks of social and political realities. And then he concludes, but the seer, John, 
is assured that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. When John looks for the lion, he sees a lamb looking at it as, as if it had been slain. A clear reference to Jesus Christ and his character as the crucified one. He comes and takes the book at which there begins a mighty chorus of praise, first from the elders and the living creatures close to the heavenly throne, and then is taken up by myriads of angels, and finally by every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea, and that is all that is in them. In this way, John makes his point that the future belongs not to the Roman emperor or any human potentate or ecclesiastic. It belongs to no man, no group of men, but to Christ. And so the writer of the the, the revelation uh, wanted to make sure that uh, that the church was encouraged and that we are encouraged, even as he says, here's some things that are uh, at issue with the church. So the close of the prologue um, is interesting as well. Blessed is the one who reads aloud these words. Do all of your translations have the word aloud? No. <laughs> it's, it's, it's strongly implied. And uh, the translations that, that pick up that implication, go ahead and put in the word aloud, but um, not all translations have that. Um, which one do you, what are you reading, Nancy? Is it New International? Yeah, the NASB is the only one I got on mine that doesn't that say doesn't it out loud. Say yeah. it. All my footnotes say blessed that there are seven Beatitudes in Revelation. They give you scripture and said John wanted the book read at once and preferably aloud in the churches. What my footnote says. Um, Nancy buried the lead for me. Okay. Uh, there are seven blessed statements. And if you want to write the references down, I'll give them to you. Uh, they're called the Beatitudes of the Revelation. And this is the first one. It closes the prologue, but the other ones are in chapter 14, verse 13. Chapter 16, verse 15. Chapter 19, verse 9. Chapter 20, verse 6. Chapter 22, verse 7. And chapter 22, verse 14. And uh, it'd be a real good sermon to do all seven of them at once. And I think that's what John had in mind. He said, "Don't don't read part of this. And your people will go jump off a bridge. <laughs> read it all. Read read the the entirety of this this promise. Don't don't leave people hanging. And so the the blessed is the the and it's I, to my knowledge it's it's one of the few places, if not the only place, where it says that you are blessed by the reading of the book. Um, and of course, it was long after the rest of them were written. And uh, and I don't know if John knew he was writing the, the close of the canon. Uh, Jesus certainly did. 
So blessed is the one who reads aloud the book of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. So if you're kind of studying, you can see that he he has a, a loop between the things that must soon take place in verse one with for the time is near. And you can see that he, he sort of closes the parenthesis there. And then he begins the greetings to the seven churches, which is the, the body of the whole book. So the Lead intro in my Bible to one three is the lead key verse for the whole book of Revelation. That's their opinion. Interesting. Uh, the study Bible that Bill Adams is reading says that verse three is the key to understanding the entire book of Revelation. I don't. Uh, I don't dispute that um, because if you look at the very end of Revelation. Um, he says in verse uh, 22 18 I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book if anyone adds to them God will add to him the plagues described in this book and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city so there is a uh, definitely a premium placed on reading and understanding the prophecy. All right. So let's look at the rest of chapter one. Um, verse four identifies the recipients and the author. There's a, a doxology that starts the body of the book. Grace to you, peace from him who is who was, who is to come, that's actually a link to the Old Testament because Yahweh was, was described as the God who was, who is, and who is to come. Uh, Isaiah described in that way. He's in Exodus described that way. So John is uh, introducing one of the many links between the Old Testament and uh, the Revelation. So he says, uh, it is from the seven spirits who are before the throne. How many Holy Spirits are there? One. So the number seven here means what? Perfect. Perfect, complete. So it's not trying to say there's this polygamy of spirits. It's trying to say that the Holy Spirit, the spirit, the 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 Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, he is one. So the Spirit and Jesus and the Father have sent this to the churches. And uh, again, the doxology includes the description of God and the description of Christ. He is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So you, you can see the doxology there, the, the, the introduction, 
So we've identified the, the author, the recipients, the setting, um, and he closes uh, the doxology. It's like any good preacher. He says, amen, and then he thinks of something else to say. <laughs> and so he, uh, he ascribes to the one who's giving him this vision, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So he's identified himself. This is the, the giver of the vision. And now he uh, says in verse 9, I'm the earthly guy. I'm the guy who wrote it all down. I'm John. I'm just the guy who ran around with you. I'm your brother, your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I was on this island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Maybe he's telling us how he got there. He uh, got caught preaching and they didn't like what he had to say and off to the island. Can we back up just a minute to verse 8? Because there's uh, something I've noticed here just for the first time, just last week, where he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Now, if we believe Jesus is revealing this, is he making the claim now that he is the Lord God? Because, I mean, that's, I mean, we see it throughout the whole New Testament, that argument that's being made. This is the first time I've ever seen it here. Uh, well, he, he actually kind of starts... Um, with this um, um, inclusio or this pericope when he uh, talks about grace to you and peace from him back in verse four, the second half of verse four, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And now he closes it with the, the identification that he is the Alpha, the Omega. He is God, the Father, God, the Spirit. Um, so he is he is clear. Did you skip verse 7 or was I writing down and zoned down? Uh, no, it's a further description of uh, uh, the uh, prophecy. Okay. Um, and, uh, of course, he says well, amen yeah, twice. Yeah, he's getting up into the clouds and all that other yeah. stuff there. Uh, but he, and he says amen again. Okay, uh, I thought maybe he skipped it on. Like any good preacher. Yeah, behold, he is coming with the clouds. And, 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 and that lets us know that this is a description of the second coming of Christ. This is not just, and in my mind, it, it dismisses several of the, the ways to look at Revelation. Because he, he is clearly saying this is a message about tribulation. This is a message about the second coming of Christ. And so to to say that even the second coming is a metaphor, yeah, um, yeah. it's just that's not what the, the writer is trying to get us to see. Okay. Thank you. All right. So he says. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and he would have meant Sunday. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Mm -hmm. And all of those are grouped within a, I don't know, a hundred mile 
radius. And it's it has always been fascinating to me that the revelation was not sent to Palestine. It wasn't sent to Rome. It wasn't sent to Europe. It was sent to Asia. And uh, and if if the activity of the spirit in Asia today is any indication, there is revival of the work of the spirit there. This would be called Asia Minor because it's the far western edge of Turkey. Uh, Ephesus would be the farthest west because it was the, the port city. Um, the rest of them are inland. All right. So he says, send it to the churches. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And here we go. I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, he's going to do something else with the number of lampstands. But we're still supposed to see that Jesus is the perfection of the lamp. He is the light of the world. Uh, he is the, um, the light of light. He's clothed in a long robe, golden sash. Hairs of his head are white, white wool, purity. Eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. Unfortunately, some character of this is what we usually see in the promos for those movies. Fire coming out of his eyes and white hair and angry. And that's not what John saw. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Gary, mm -hmm. Alpha, and Omega. Yep. The living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and hell. Um, I'm not sure that's not a key to the understanding of the book of Revelation. Because what he's trying to tell us is that these churches, and we'll see next week, that the churches are doing good. They're, they're doing some good stuff. But the... Uh, the, the vision here is that the churches need to hear that the main thing is I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died. Now I'm alive forever. I have the keys to death. I have the keys to hell. So write everything that you see. Those that are, those that are to take place after this. So again... The historicists would say, okay, the, the story of the church. The idealists would say, yes, there were some literal things that took place that had been taking place. When, when in 95, he wrote about the persecution and the tribulation, that had been going on for 60 years. Nero was... Uh, uh, he executed Peter and Paul in 68 AD. The first martyr in the New Testament church, uh, 
uh, Stephen uh, would have been just a few years uh, before that. Uh, the, the, the book of Acts is dated somewhere around 50. And so the, the, the persecution of Christians started with Christ on the cross and it was still going on when he wrote this. It had spread. Um, the Romans had actually made it legal to be a Jew, but they didn't protect Christianity. Once they began to feel like Christians were not Jews, for a long time, Rome thought that Christianity was just a subset of Jewish uh, faith. That, that Judaism was the, the big picture, and, and here was this little subset of uh, little Christ, Christians. But the more the message in the New Testament began to spread on its own, remember the diaspora, the more people began to say, this is a departure from Judaism, and it was no longer under Roman protection. And so the persecution was intense, and he would have been uh, uh, things that had gone on, things that were going on, things that ought to go on. All right, let's finish it up. Um, as for the mystery, that's one of the things that makes me wonder if it was a little bit of a pot shot at Ephesus, because the, the cults in Ephesus uh, there was a lot of talk about the mystery and and the uh, especially the cult of Diana or the cult of Artemis at the temple. Uh, it was it was thought that the the deepest secrets of the temple only the priests could know. And so every now and then the writers of the Bible would throw out a little sh uh, shade on the, the culture and so he says that this mystery is meant to be known. Um, the the here here you go the the seven stars, uh, the seven lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the churches themselves. So beginning next week, he's going to talk to us about what he uh, wants to tell those churches. And after the letters to the churches, he's going to start into the imagery that is what he just got finished telling John to write now. All right. We uh, we keep saying mention of the seven churches. Now, are we thinking that this is a literal seven churches and the rest of the seven we see that number of perfection? Or are we thinking that's just a, a, a bigger representation of all the churches in Asia? Yes. <laughs> Nailed it. All right. All right. Good talk. It's it, it's definitely a literal seven churches. He he lists them. Right. But the point about the churches only being in Asia Minor, we we know that he that the the angel or or Christ himself was giving John a vision, not just of Asia Minor but of worlds that they knew not of, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the things that were on the other side of the great sea. And uh, so, so yeah, the, the, the seven churches, and I think it's fair to, uh, to observe that each of the churches in the uh, critique 
was representative of something that happens in churches today mm -hmm. that needs a corrective. At the same time, uh, there were seven very specific churches, though not a single one of them exists today. And it could have been that those were the most important and largest churches in Christendom at that time. Because Ephesus was the center of the Christian movement, starting with Paul and then John for a hundred years or something. Or more, and the population of Ephesus was a quarter of a million people. So these could have been the biggest, most important churches yeah. in all of Christendom. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly, we, we don't really think a lot of... Um, Asia Minor, but this was the trade route, right? This was the this was the trade route uh, for the land bridge that would cross into Europe at Philippi. So at the the northern end of the Aegean Sea, uh, the Ignatian Way or the Appian Way. Answer the door, George. But if I can piggyback on Andy's thought, it certainly reinforces the idea that to whom much is given, much is required. Mm -hmm. If these were the largest churches in Christendom, he singled them out to say, you should do better. We should have ears to hear. All right, everyone. We will see you again on Sunday when we dive in from a different angle to the first chapter of Revelation. Thank you, Alan. This is so good. Good night, y'all.